Hello and welcome back to the fifth episode in our series, What is Good Food? Once again, we'll be lifting the lid and finding out more about how two researchers are working to explore the question of what creates value in food. Today we are joined in the studio by Dr. Katarina Graf and via the wonders of technology from Croatia by Anna Cahoon. Anna Cahoon is a part-time doctoral student currently based in Croatia for her fieldwork with rural food producers and restaurants. Having professionally worked in food, Anna returned to university to study the anthropology of food at the SOAS Food Studies Centre, where she continues her research. Her interests include the social construction of cuisine and placemaking and value creation through food. Dr Katarina Graf is a postdoctoral research fellow at the SOAS Food Studies Centre, University of London. Her research interests pertain to the preparation of food, material and social change, gender, urban space, food security, risk and uncertainty, and global markets. Regionally, she focuses on Morocco, North Africa, and the Mediterranean region. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, Casey. I'm fine. Great to hear from you. How are you? Good, thanks. So you're, you're in Croatia, but where exactly are you? Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I'm actually in the region called Istria, um, which is a peninsula in the northwest of Croatia, but actually also includes parts of Slovenia and Italy as well. Um, so that's where I am here doing my PhD fieldwork. I'm, I'm quite fresh, only a few months <laughs> in, so this is very much research in progress. But I have been coming here for a few years now, getting to know the area. And a couple of years ago, I did some research here for my master's, uh, which is what I'll probably talk about mostly today. How are you doing in London? Thanks, I'm very well. Um, so tell us, what are you up to in Istria? Well, I'm looking at local specialities. So as you know, it seems like everywhere these days needs to have its own local cuisine, its own iconic foods. Um, so I'm asking, and Istria is, is no exception. Um, so I'm asking exactly what goes into um, creating such a local speciality. How is it identified? How is it valued? What makes it good? Um, and one of the things that first caught my eye was the rather bizarre case of the Istrian ox. Um, so for centuries, until as late as the 80s even, this particular breed of ox was used as a draft animal here by poor rural households. Um, they are really impressive animals. I, I've seen some. They can be absolutely enormous, super strong, huge horns, really majestic beasts. And they would often live 20-odd years with one family for whom they would provide invaluable labour. Now, however, tractors have replaced them in the fields um, and instead you find them on the plate. Um, and they tend to be served in sort of mid to high end restaurants, um, often branded gourmet, you know, a really delicious local speciality that you must try. So I really wondered how did an animal which surely possessed meat as tough as old boots um, and which had rarely even been considered of as food, let alone gourmet food, come to be transformed so radically so that's what got me started on this whole this whole business of local specialities um but how's your postdoc going what what research are you going to talk about today well so i actually um uh, have to go back 10 years um uh to tell you that back then i was actually interested in the issue of water scarcity in rural areas and with my team, we thought that because water was scarce already and predicted to get even more scarce in the future, people would be really worried about it. 
turns out they weren't. Um, and instead, all they seemed to care about was food, good food. And since then, wherever I was in the country, I noticed that the question of good food was always very important to the people I have worked with. So for the last five years, my ethnogra ethnographic research focused on urban Moroccans, especially women, who spend a lot of time cooking, despite the fact that they have less and less time to do so. And um, I have cooked, shopped and eaten with women in the city of Marrakesh and more recently in my postdoc, um, also in the city of Beni Melal in central Morocco. So um, I'm really drawing on all of that research um, for uh, our discussion today. Um, and bread turned out to be a particularly interesting food, not just because it is eaten every day and with every meal uh, and in amounts well beyond those of, say, uh, in Italy or France, um, where they also eat a lot of bread, um, but because its preparation speaks to so many connected values. And one that I want to focus on today um, is the importance of homemade bread. Um, and when it comes to identifying good food, the people I worked with, they also of, often ask questions such as where does a food item come from and how is it processed? And of course, how does it taste? Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, I'd agree with Moroccans that food is really important. I think we all would. Um, but what I mean, what what's the context for all this? You need to fill me in a bit on on what's going on in Morocco these days. Sure. Um, so, well, this strong interest, or I would even say stronger um, than normal interest in food's quality, um, is partly due to the Moroccan food market and to governmental food policies. So um, you have to imagine that on the one hand, the food market is pretty unregulated and decentralized. Um, so for instance, um, the vegetables and fruits that are sold in the markets across Moroccan cities are rarely packaged or of standardized quality. Um, and prices are rarely fixed, but rather connected to availability. Um, and that in turn um, is determined by factors such as season, weather and harvest. Um, and yeah, obviously these are things that um, we European consumers no longer feel as we shop in our supermarkets, where most mm. fresh products are available year round and at fairly predictable prices. Now, so uh, an interesting result of the absence of regulation in this case is that um, the Moroccan shopper actually speaks to the vendor. So um, to find out about the price and the quality of an item or where it comes from, um, uh, you need to just speak. Um, and on top of that, shoppers of often also touch, smell or taste a fruit or vegetable to assess um, the quality in a more bodily way. And this, this means that not only the vendor, but also the shopper needs to know quite a bit about how food is produced and where it comes from simply to understand how its price is determined and to choose the best quality at the best price. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, some, some commodities like soft wheat or sugar are considered politically sensitive. So they're heavily controlled by the government through measures such as subsidies or price controls. And they are politically sensitive because they're staple foods and vital to food security in Morocco. And without the cheap bread, and I should add without sweet mint tea, Especially poorer mm. Moroccans living in the fast-growing cities would struggle to get by in life. And um, to avoid social unrest, like in other Arab nations, which is a real risk also in Morocco, the government provides cheap staple foods. And in fact, it has done so since at least two centuries. So the result of these policies is that some wheat grains um, and breads are rather unnaturally cheap. And not surprisingly, there are also they're also of dubious quality and origin. So taken together, this makes Moroccans really suspicious of the foods they eat. 
That's interesting. Um, so um, I, I've been talking a lot here. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's really, it's really interesting, and I'm hoping you're going to tell me more in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let's move back to Istria. So why is the ox undergoing such a revaluing? Well, I mean, it's not just the ox that there are other local specialities here. Um, and, and the context really is that since the mid 90s, since the Yugoslav wars, that is, the tourism industry um, has had to reinvent itself. So the offer of cheap sun and sea has taken something of a quality turn. Um, and this includes the promotion of gastronomic and rural tourism aimed largely at the wealthier tourist. So now you see Istrian cuisine as something widely promoted in, in restaurants and other eateries. Um, and this Istrian cuisine um, includes uh, things like prosciutto, olive oil, wine, truffles, wild asparagus, pasta dishes, seafood, um, meat cooked in the fireplace in particular ways, um, and of course, the ox meat. Um, so you can see my my field work is is going to make me fat. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, what so various interesting things about this list of local specialities? It's actually quite a small selection out of a much broader array of possibilities. Um, but what they have in common um, is the idea that they are they're definitely Istrian. Um, they're authentically so, um, uh, traditional, etc. And of course, they taste great. So they are you know, assumed to be, they are presented as undoubtedly good food. Mm -hmm. um, which seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, of course, all tourists want this, right? Uh, local specialties are attractive. No. <laughs> well, yes, they are. But and I think this is this is partly the obviousness is, is partly what's interesting to me, um, because I think we all we often take for granted that local specialities are the, the obvious and natural products of a place um, and that they're good. You know, they're local, they're special. What's not to like? Um, and of course, they carry an economic premium for these reasons. Um, but the problem um, with this is that it assumes um several things that it assumes we know what special or good food is and that we agree on that and it assumes we all know exactly um you know what where who how or even when this local place is um and in istria that's particularly tricky um so istria is a peninsula with several imperial legacies it's been venetian austrian italian more recently yugoslav um, and now it's uh, croatian and slovenian um, there have been multiple border changes, lots of in and out migration. Um, there's quite a lot of ethnic and linguistic diversity across the peninsula. It's quite recently entered into global markets. And there is a pretty stark contrast between the rural areas inland and the coast, which actually stretches back centuries. Um, so defining Istria as a place is, is definitely not simple. So my interest with my research, therefore, is how ideas about Istria as a place um, and about good food help construct the value in local specialities. Um, and at the same time, I suspect, while people are talking and practicing local specialities um, and food more broadly, they are helping construct Istria itself. Um, I guess basically what I want to know is as people create economic value, 
through their local specialities, what else is going on. Okay, so this is really interesting. So you're saying clearly economic value is important, but there are other factors. Yeah, I, I do think it's about far more than price, um, although, of course, price is an important factor. Um, uh, for a start, it's about taste, um, not just personal taste, but the tastes of various social groups. It's about the things which go into the food, such as its provenance, the type of food system it came out of, the style of its preparation, even the person who cooked it. These things can all create value. Um, and of course, value can come from the setting. Think about restaurant aesthetics, packaging, even the name given to food. You know, if I was to offer you eggy bread for breakfast <laughs> or maybe pan pedu, um, <laughs> some people might value the latter more. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's it's clearly about more than just uh, economic value. Mm -hmm. So it's really it's uh, um, about the things uh, that you can't measure, um, uh, certainly not in abstract terms such as money. Um, I, from yeah. what from what you you were just saying, it, it also becomes pretty clear that the social context matters and that the making of good food is a way in which people take a meaningful part in the society they live in. Um, and I think it also um, shows that at the same time, the social rec recognition is key to what makes uh, food good. Yes, I think I, I can definitely see that um, being true for Istrian specialities. And in fact, um, what I think I'm increasingly realizing is that what makes them valuable is what they do um, in terms of their ability to configure people and places in certain ways. Um, and, and this relies on social recognition. So it only works if the people involved recognize and value what the local speciality is doing. Um, And I, I see this working differently across different social contexts, um, as you say. I, I can give a few examples, if you like, um, regarding my ox. Yes, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so for many, the most obvious one is that for many um, farmers and rural tavern owners um, I've talked to, what makes meat good, including ox meat, is what the animal ate. 100% what the animal ate, also how it was reared. Um, and this should be small scale production um, by a known and trusted smallholder. These things are really important. So culinary technique matters less other than it should be simple so as not to mask the meat's true natural flavor, um, which is also important. And the recipe should be from their Istrian grandmothers. So in these contexts, you see ox meat very often prepared as goulash, a sort of slow cooked stew. Um, and this, this ox meat is valuable to such proprietors, I think, because serving ox can directly link them to the rural heartland of Istria, its, its agricultural heritage and its so-called autochthonous people. Um, and this, as I was saying, has, has to be socially recognized, but it, it is made very clear in these establishments because they, you know, they're full of old farm equipment decorating the walls. And you'll even find very frequently old black and white photos of an Istrian ox you know, sta standing in that very farmyard. Um, But as a contrast, uh, in a different setting, for the chefs and proprietors of urban and high-end establishments, um, and also, in fact, for the regional bodies whose job it is to promote Istrian food, what makes the meat good um, is the breed, um, its identification with the region as a whole, and its more ancient natural heritage. But even more than that, actually, I think it's about the meat's place in Istrian gastronomy. Um, 
So, and that word gastronomy uh, is frequently used. Um, and this, this gastronomy is about using local produce in innovative, modern ways. Um, it's about competing with other gastronomic destinations internationally. So here um, you find that the chef's training, um, skill and creativity is, is really important for the creation of value. So in such places you'll find you know, ox carpaccio, ox pate and, and many more dishes, sometimes even combined with rather exotic ingredients. Um, so in this case, I think what it does um, is that serving ox um, is valuable because it creates an exclusive group of cooks and gourmets, dis discerning gourmets. Um, and this is made clear by a plaque on the wall. So such, such restaurants will often be displaying the certificate they got, um, which is only issued to a handful of restaurants um, who have received training in how to prepare ox meat. Um, so this certificate proves the special training um, and it also authenticates the meat being served as the correct breed. Um, so I think it's interesting here how, how the ox is creating value in different ways, um, in different social settings. It's doing slightly different things. Um, and I, and I, I really could go on, so you're going to have to stop me because <laughs> um, I do find the ox quite fascinating. Um, I mean, another interesting thing is that uh, while it is used for some foreign dishes like pate and carpaccio, it's almost never used to make foods deemed to be Balkan. Um, so the prime example is chivapchichi, which are grilled um, oblong-shaped meatballs, uh, which are very popular right across the former Yugoslavia, including in Istria. Um, another thing is that the ox actually has a lot of value not being eaten. Um, it's very valued here as living heritage in, in, in various forms. Um, and finally, I'll just mention that some people have told me all oh, the fuss about the ox is actually misplaced. Um, and what we should be preserving and celebrating um, is the Istrian donkey or the Istrian goat, which were more important um, historically, uh, especially to women, interestingly. Anyway, that, that's a bit of a whirlwind tour. Of course, I'm simplifying with these examples and there's loads to unpack. Um, I'd love to talk to you more. Um, but I think you get the idea is that this ox meat is being, you know, both materially and symbolically created in different ways so as to make it valuable um, and so as to make it do something desirable. And this this definitely moves beyond simply making money. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of good food, I think you can see that there's there's no local consensus as to what makes it good food. I mean, um, it's it's really um, fascinating to compare because it's actually a little different in Morocco. Um, uh, so it's uh, it's a lot more about how people make food good. Um, and this is where the homemaking of food that I mentioned earlier mm. comes in. So, uh, you know, um, ordinary people's practical response um, responses to this un- and over-regulated market is to process as much of the foods they are consuming um, themselves. Um, and uh, I, I'll come back to the example of bread. Um, so most of the 20 or so families that I interviewed and worked with over the years prefer to source the grains for making bread in their native region, wherever that's possible. And if they no longer have connections to their relatives in the countryside, well, then they buy grains in large quantities at the weekly market, like once or twice a month. And they clean the grains at home, bring it to one of the many neighborhood mills and then sieve it at home into wholemeal flour and bran. 
Wow, and, that sounds like such a lot of work. It is. And, you know, and, and I mean, we're not even making bread yet. Um, <laughs> uh, to actually then make that bread, you know, this dark and rather heavy textured flour is then actually stretched with the very white and soft flour that is sold so cheaply under government control. Um, well, and the proportions are roughly 50-50 here. Um, uh, and I should mention here that the people I worked with were poor. So even though they consider the white industrially produced flour as tasteless and bland and describe it as a filling material, so quite the opposite of good food, um, they cannot actually afford to use just homemade flour in their bread. And the important thing is simply to have homemade flour. So bread that contains this flour is not only considered to taste better, but also to be healthier and more fulfilling. And many of the people I worked with stressed that such breads are also blessed. They call this barakam. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, let me repeat this just because it, I find it so incredible. Um, and I myself tend to forget, forget that easily because I've been researching this for so long now. But, you know, Moroccans buy grains to make their own flour, to make their own bread. Um, mm, um, and, and, you know, and this is not just a question of missing alternatives. So you can find flowers and breads of all qualities and types easily and cheaply in all Moroccan cities. It is rather that homemade foods such as bread are simply invaluable. Um, and many, many cooks told me over and again, uh, you know what's in there. Um, so these ordinary m women, with the help of their husbands, sons, brothers and, and their whole family, in fact, are making food good through their own practices. And they have a name for this too. So foods that are sourced in one's hometown, which means bled in Moroccan Arabic, and that are largely hand and homemade are called beldi. Hmm. The ble bled means village. And then from that you get beldi. Is exactly. that right? Which exactly. means sort of from the countryside traditional. Um, that That's actually really interesting because there's a similar concept here. Um, people often talk about good food being domacha food um, and damachi means hand or homemade as opposed to industrial um, local as opposed to imported and it's always said to taste better than shop-bought um, mm -hmm. I think you saying that homemade is invaluable is, is quite interesting because obviously it's, it's, it's really valuable <laughs> but you can't put a price on it and it's I think it's the same in some ways with demarcha. Um, and you see this term demarcha food used by agritourism quite often to stress their rustic and rural credentials to help create the value of their food, you know, which they are saying is very much home and handmade. Um, but I wonder if, if Beldi is the same, you, you know, and here I notice it's very much an ideal. So people will talk about demarcha um, as the ideal, but of course it's really hard to to serve or consume only demarcha food. You know, sometimes it's just got to come from the supermarket, the cash and carry, or through other routes from outside Istria for many reasons. You know, price, convenience, um, trying to match supply to demand. I mean, for example, there is huge demand here for prosciutto, sorry, prosciutto, mm -hmm. <laughs> and truffles. Um, and it's hard to match that uh, demand um, and and also sometimes legal restrictions because so-called private meat, i.e. very demarcha meat that you would get from a friend in the village, won't come as a receipt. Um, so it's difficult to use that in some commercial contexts. Um, so, yes, yeah. it's, it's an ideal. Is that what's how does it work in Morocco? 
It's uh, it's very much like that, um, and there are lots of problems um, connected to that. But because we've got just a couple of minutes left, um, tell me what what's the problem? I'm, I'm sure you you will have issues with that. Um, if it's an ideal, what what does it mean for <laughs> for tourism practices? Yeah, well. In the home, in private, it doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. You know, everyone understands mm -hmm. needs must and um, people's tastes vary. Um, but where it is problematic is indeed in the tourism setting. Um, when you're when you're having to serve food to customers who expect authentic Istrian and good food, as I was saying earlier about local specialities. Um, and within this, I think it's particularly problematic for the rural agro-tourisms and taverns that I've mentioned because much of the value of their food is based around its rootedness in local nature and agriculture and its true demarcher qualities. So I think for them, um, it really is a problem. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's it's. I mean, I can totally see um, the the complexities there. Um, in Morocco, of course, it's also um, like you said, um, Beldi is um, very much an ideal. Um, and and, pro and the, the problem in Morocco is more the the aspect of um, uh, social change. So um, uh, in urban Morocco. Um, women nowadays go to secondary school and to university and then they take up wage work basically like anywhere else in Europe or North America. Um, and of course they have less time to prepare food. Um, and still they themselves uphold this value of good food as home, homemade food. And in those few cases where I have known these young women for a long enough time, it really struck me how they start making their own flour and bread as soon as they start their own family. Um, it's just, you know, homemade food is just such an incredibly important thing for these women. And it is valued in the Moroccan society as a whole. Um, so um, it's it's really practicalities against um, uh, the values of homemade food here in this case. Mm. But the values are so strong by the sound of it that it really is persisting as a practice. Yes. Yeah. Um, Uh, well, I, I think it's there are lots of more parallels that we could draw, um, but to, to come to an end with our conversation, which is really so interesting, um, the, the big question, of course, is why does all of this matter? <laughs> <laughs> well, we should all be asking ourselves as researchers. Well, in my case, I think it matters because local specialities often go unquestioned. Um, their positive role in tourism, regional and rural, rural development is often assumed, but I think it's clear from our discussion that local specialities are made and valued in lots of competing ways. Um, this has more to do with uh, more, to, has a lot more than just economic value going on here. Um, and moreover, within this, some people do have more power or possibility than others to material, materially or sh symbolically shape foods to make them valuable. Um, so I would say it matters and I would recommend that next time you're offered a local speciality, do try it, enjoy it, um, but stop for a minute just to wonder why it was selected as such, what was not selected, who was involved, who wasn't, what qualities and meanings it comes with and which might be suppressed. And in fact, what it's doing on the plate. Um, and of course, the answers will tell you a whole lot about the locality. Um, so it's not that local specialities are, are fake as such. Um, on the contrary, I think they've got a lot to reveal um, if you peel back the layers. Yeah, oh gosh, I could say the same thing about Morocco. Um, of course, the story does not end with these women either, right? Um, uh, and in Morocco, as I outlined earlier, the government plays an equally important role in the determination of what good food is. So both the absence of regulation and in its control of so-called sensitive commodities like soft wheat 
uh, it, it, it definitely um, plays a huge role as well. And um, I think uh, the question to ask in the Moroccan case is, well, what would happen if the government decided to abandon the, sub abandon the subsidies and price controls? And as an anthropologist, it's definitely not my task to wonder whether a Moroccan spring would materialize. Um, but um, I, I'm more interested in the shock wave that this might send through deep social value, values such as those around good food. So um, would the people I worked with still consider white flour as tasteless um, filling material if it was more expensive? Or would the cost of homemade bread rise so high that they have no choice but to buy the cheaper and ready-made breads? And of course, what would happen to women's daily practices and their knowledge um, and so on? <laughs> Mm. I think I think that's I think that's fascinating and maybe you've just summed it all up there because this shows that value is created at the intersection of so many things you know from government policy to gender roles um, multiple layers layers at different scales um, and it's worth questioning what's dished up to us um, whether a piece of bread or a piece of beef <laughs> <laughs> nice talking to you Katie thanks it was great really great to hear such details and the great examples thanks Anna brilliant we should talk more thanks Absolutely. bye well thank you to Dr Katerina Graff and Anna Cahoon for a fascinating discussion you've given us a lot to think about and thank you to our listeners we hope you've enjoyed our series of podcasts and they provided much food for thought